It's quarter miles travel, where the adventure begins when you reach into your pocket. There's a story behind every state quarter design, a story that can take you on an adventure of your own, from one-of-a-kind landmarks to hometown heroes. Start your journey with Anita and Olivia, one quarter mile at a time. Hi, this is Anita Thomas, radio personality and on-air host of Travel Bags with Anita and Friends. I'm also the creator of Quarter Miles, a travel program with a bit of a different twist. I started this program on my radio show over a year and a half ago. It's all about being inspired to explore our country based on the U.S. Mint state quarters. Most of us were part of that rage of collecting them back in the day. And if you check your pockets or even your sofa cushions, you'll find a few of them waiting to inspire you today. Now, I've been asked, what made you think of a travel segment based on a quarter? I like to share that it was all a part of my annual review of what's been a good fit and what would make programming more interesting, entertaining, and educational. What would inspire our radio friends to go visit destinations around the country? And I feel that Quarter Miles is really all about pride. Pride in our respective states as well as our country. The state quarters feature all that is great about each state. And after all, each state selected what they felt best represented them. As a flight attendant with Pan Am, I travel to over 90 countries, and while there are beautiful destinations all around the world, I wanted to highlight all of the natural beauty of the United States, the history, landmarks, and interesting people who make our country an exceptional place to visit. So come along as we start this adventure, and check your pockets, pull out that quarter and flip it over, and Quarter Mouse Travel will take it from there. We'll help you turn that quarter into an adventure. Welcome to the first episode of the Quarter Miles Podcast. I'm Anita Thomas. I'm Olivia Vartson. Some of you may know us from the Travel Bags with Anita and Friends radio show. Last year, we started the Quarter Miles segment to plan travel around the U.S. state quarter designs. From 1999 to 2008, the U.S. Mint released quarters featuring a unique design to represent all 50 states. Before designs were finalized, each state went through a lengthy process to decide upon an image that best represented what made their state special. Here on the Quarter Miles podcast, we'll uncover the stories behind every design, from important monuments to hometown historical figures, unforgettable moments to natural beauty. We'll cover it all one quarter mile at a time. In today's episode, we're focusing on what many consider to be the greatest human achievement of all times, the first flight. On December 17, 1903, in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, brothers Orville and Wilbur Wright completed the first successful flight of a heavier-than-air, self-propelled flying machine. Their craft, called the Flyer, traveled approximately 120 feet 
on that first flight. Although the Wright brothers grew up in the Midwest, there was no place better suited for their experiments than Kitty Hawk. It provided the ideal weather conditions and seclusion from competitors. The Wright brothers worked there for several years alongside the guards at the life-saving station and became fixtures in the coastal community. They are still celebrated on the Outer Banks today. To learn more about the Wright brothers' time in Kitty Hawk, we talk with historian Danny Couch. Danny is a member of the First Flight Society an organization dedicated to the memory of Orville and Wilbur. He started by telling us what brought the Wright brothers to Kitty Hawk. Wilbur and Orville Wright did a lot of research. They knew they were on to a great potential achievement here. Uh, They were highly confident, uh, very secure in their knowledge of what they were with their plans for a burning passion that they had flight. But after writing to the United States Weather Service, which uh, today we know as uh, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, they asked for a list of the windiest places in uh, the United States at that time. And of course, uh, there were the top 10 locations, uh, the first five uh, being areas like Chicago, uh, even other areas in their immediate vicinity of, of Dayton, uh, Cleveland, and others, they felt that their their drive, so to speak, would be compromised. So they were looking not only for wind, but they were also looking for a place where they could kind of operate in secrecy and not be compromised. And lo and behold, number six down on the list was this place called Kitty Hawk. North Carolina. And it was about a 24-hour uh, run, uh, actually uh, a week. It took a week to get here by train. They had to change train three times to do this trip and also take a boat ride from Elizabeth City, North Carolina, up on the North River to get to these chain of barrier islands here. But it was the wind was the they needed the wind to be able to accomplish what they were doing. Number two, they didn't want these rocky areas uh, that could compromise your safety, soft sand made for a good landing area. And number three, they wanted to be in an area where they knew they could get some support, and that is what happened here, the United States Lifesaving Service, and then, of course, the local people, uh, the hospitality aspect of this is what sealed the deal. Those were the three criteria there, the wind, uh, the uh, landing capabilities uh, with no rocks and the, the willingness of a local populace to help them. They felt they had the perfect mix here in Kitty Hawk on North Carolina's Outer Bank. In addition to receiving assistance from the United States Life Saving Station, the Kitty Hawk community gave the Wright brothers a warm welcome. The hospitality older brother Wilbur Wright experienced when he first scouted the location turned out to be a deciding factor as important as the optimal weather conditions and promise of privacy. The man, uh, the postmaster at that time, his name was Bill Tate. He wore a lot of hats. He was also a county commissioner and uh, pretty much ran the social scene, uh, if you can call it that, in 1900. Uh, they arrived here. Actually, Wilbur came out here first, September 1900. But to, um, uh, to quote him uh, almost verbatim, you will find yourselves amongst a very hospitable people and we will do everything within our powers to ensure your visit is worthwhile. That punched a button with Wilbur Wright. Wilbur was the older brother, but he was he, he would be relevant 
today. Yes, we're talking about 118 years ago when he first arrived in September 1900, uh, discovered this uh, wonderful insect we have here called mosquitoes uh, at that time of year. But he knew that he was going to find himself in a position here where he could probably meet with the best amount of success as opposed to any of the other selections on that, on that list from the Weather Service. Members of the Kitty Hawk community were equally impressed with the Wright brothers themselves. Although Orville and Wilbur often worked from sunup to sundown, their hard work and dedication inspired those who witnessed it firsthand. They took note of the meticulous routine as well as the strong sense of teamwork between the two brothers. It was obvious that Orville and Wilbur's differences helped strengthen one another, creating a perfect balance for their work's life. Here Danny notes the unique characteristics of Orville and Wilbur. Both guys, Wilbur and Orville, were somewhere between introverts and extroverts. Uh, they were not snobs. Uh, they knew they were highly intelligent, and indeed they were, uh, particularly Wilbur, who I've always been fascinated with. He was a borderline genius. Well, a a actually, there's no borderline to it. He was a genius. Wilbur was uh, kind, kind of the guy that most guys today uh, would loathe. Uh, he was fairly tall, good-looking guy, uh, very secure, uh, very fit. He and Orville both were champion bicycle racers in the Dayton area. Wilbur loved art, loved culture. Uh, he was a mathematical genius, a ma I want to say prodigy. His mother was a uh, mechanic from a, a family that made wagons. As a matter of fact, that's where the both of the boys got their mechanical ingenuity was from their mother. Unfortunately, uh, she passed when they were not even entered, and Wilbur wasn't even a teen. Their father was an official with, with the church. Uh, Wilbur also uh, was a meticulous note-taker. One of the lines uh, every night uh, when he had the opportunity, and that was most nights because there was nothing to do here, uh, he would record in his journal the events of the day. And early on, uh, in his first visit here, uh, as they were preparing what would be the next two and a half years of their life's work, he made a little entry uh, when he arrived here and set foot on our lonely uh, sands here, this barrier island. He said, now I know what the Sahara Desert looks like. It was literally uh, literally like being on the moon. It was a lunar landscape here, sparse vegetation. None of these um, massive beach houses that we have, no asphalt, of course, uh, just an absolute uh, desolate type of landscape here. But it was, uh, he knew when he set foot here that this was going to be, uh, that this would work. Now, Orville, Orville was, uh, was also uh, a good-looking guy. These two guys, they prided themselves in their ability to debate amongst themselves. They would actually, one would be the protagonist and the other would be the antagonist. They would take turns arguing their position or arguing the other's position for his benefit. And Orville being the little brother, call it the little brother syndrome, believed there was a real looking up to his older brother. Uh, Wilbur arrived here first, as we said. Uh, these guys' work ethic was beyond reproach. As a matter of fact, one of the gentlemen uh, who was uh, actually the keeper of the United States Life Saving 
service, a man by the name of John T. Daniels, uh, said that they were the workingest boys he'd ever seen, which was quite the testimony there because these guys did. They worked. They by the time it became light out, they were working, and they worked up until the time it was dark and went to bed early seven days a week. They did take some time for themselves on Sunday to do wash, things like that. But uh, these guys, their work ethic was uh, absolutely fantastic and uh, quite, a, quite a testimony to uh, the American work spirit at that time. Some of the guards became so involved that they helped document the Wright brothers' ultimate achievement. John Thomas Daniels, Jr. worked at the station and took the famous first flight photograph. Not only would this image go on to influence the design on the back of the state quarter, but it also played a key role in convincing the world that the man flight was possible. Listen as Danny sets the scene for the morning of December 17, 1903. This is how the first flight was decided. That great American uh, scientific achievement we call flipping a coin. So they flipped a coin and Orville one. So Orville got to go first, which meant that this was the morning of December 17, 1903. They had to get it done that day. Why? Because they promised their sister, uh, Catherine Wright, that they would be home for Christmas Eve. So the 17th until the 24th was exactly a week. That was how long it took to get from the Outer Banks to Dayton, Ohio. Uh, excuse me, Orville got up into the saddle, and it was Wilbur who helped steady the plane until she could get enough uh, power to stabilize herself. Uh, we have a sculpture uh, done by a uh, famous North Carolina uh, sculptor, a guy named Stephen Smith from the western part of the state uh, out uh, in the Charlotte area, who captured that moment, that iconic photo that was taken by Mr. Daniels uh, that shows that flight that proved that flight did indeed happen but the second flight uh it was wilbur's turn uh the third flight was orville's turn and then the fourth flight the fourth and final flight that morning uh 880 feet a total of 59 seconds in the air uh, running about 10, 10 just under 10 miles an hour nine miles an hour about 10 feet above the ground was Wilbur's uh, crowning achievement. And they left from here. They left the next morning. And uh, when they came back, they didn't come back for any more tests. From, from after the point where they had succeeded here, accomplished what they had set out to do, uh, the greatest achievement uh, that mankind to this day, in the opinion of many flight professionals, uh, that has ever been accomplished in flight, they did their next experiments in the Dayton area. Uh, in an area called Hoffman Field. But that's how it worked out that morning. Very bleak day. We had had, uh, as uh, this area is recognized as one of the most extreme weather environments in the United States, uh, the day before had seen some warmish temperatures. The winds were blowing hard out of the southwest. Brought in some thunder squalls uh, the night before uh, an advancing cold front. But by the time they got out of bed that morning, when they got out at daybreak, the morning of December 17, 1903, this cold front had settled in. The temperature was below freezing. The little tidal pools from the rain of the late afternoon before had frozen over. Sand was blowing. It was enough to sting the flesh 
if you uh, your socks were did not cover your feet and your shoes, uh, it was a blowing loose sand that would actually uh, sting your ankles. Uh, cold wind, wind chill uh, would have been down in the low twenties. Uh, sustained winds of right around 25 miles an hour. Not the kind of environment that most people want to be out in, but in their case, it was good flight conditions, not optimum, but it was good flight conditions, and the urgency was such that they had to fly that day because the promise they'd made to their sister. The first flight photograph helped catapult the Wright brothers onto the world stage. In the years following their accomplishment, they would go on to tour Europe before eventually, finally, receiving the acknowledgement from their home country. Without the photograph and witnesses to share their stories, who knows how long it would have taken the rest of the world to catch on to flight, or if the Wright brothers would be rightfully credited with their accomplishment. It's not a great uh, testimony to the government of the United States that it took four or five years or, or better for the Wright brothers, not really until 1908, 1909, until the Wright brothers almost begrudgingly uh, were acknowledged as the first to fly by our own government. What tipped the tables as uh, when Wilbur and Orville went uh, to Europe, uh, where the French, of course, and uh, the British, uh, the Germans, uh, the Italians uh, treated Wilbur and Orville like rock stars. These guys were international celebrity. Our government finally took notice of that, and when they saw the uh, capability of flight from uh, from a defense, national defense uh, position, but also the of what it could mean for as a uh, scientific achievement, that's when the United States finally got into the game. But it was the French. I mean, even today, the parts of the airplane are uh, essentially French. Uh, you know, the airlines, uh, the fuselage, uh, names like that we, that we refer to, they, they, are, they, they come from the, the, the French embracing Wilbur and Orville Wright. Wilbur, while he was over there on an extended amount of time, uh, had a chance to see the Louvre, uh, enjoyed the museum, the cultural uh, side of uh, he spent hours in the Louvre. It joined the art. I mean, that place is huge. And if you read some of the books, that's one of his what he enjoyed most about being over there. Now, uh, when things began to come around, uh, the Wright brothers that they one of the ironic things is they had to almost continually prove themselves. Uh, they had to defend their position uh, that they were indeed the first to fly. And they were fiercely protective of that. Uh, they didn't put up with any uh, challenges to what they were doing. There were a lot of, uh, it was a very competitive, as we know, with what occurred with Samuel Langley, who was endorsed by our federal government at the time that the first flight was being done. But it's, it's probably not the most shining example of our government's uh, a treatment of, of what would eventually become national heroes. There's a lot of stories along the veins of the Wright brothers in that regard. Let's go back to the five witnesses who happened to be in the right place at the right time. We know that several life-saving station guards were in the area at the time, always waiting on standby to help the Wright brothers in addition to carrying out their normal duties. But there were also visitors at the station as well as shipwrecked salvagers who found themselves 
in the front row to history in the making. They became fixtures of the community in their own right, and some of their descendants still live in the Outer Banks today. The Wright brothers had an arrangement with the United States Life Saving Service, uh, known today as the United States Coast Guard, uh, that when uh, they needed assistance, uh, again, remembering that uh, Wilbur uh, was uh, told by Bill Tate that he will find you will find yourselves among a hospitable people would raise a piece of white linen up a bamboo pole. Uh, it could be seen from the life-saving station uh, about just under a mile away with a good pair of uh, uh, spy glasses. And they raised the flag that morning. There happened to be a number of people, visitors, so to speak, uh, there at the life-saving station. That life-saving station at the time had seven. It was the Kill Devil Hills life-saving station, had seven uh, full-time people in there, but a number of people had been by. Uh, First was an 18-year-old youngster by the name of Johnny Moore. Johnny Moore would later become a a very knowledgeable uh, sports hunting and sport fishing guide in this area. I remember talking to his daughter some years ago that uh, all these people who were enamored with the Wright brothers, who were enamored with flight, uh, people whose burning passion was flight, would seek Johnny Moore out and take one of his duck hunting trips or take one of his fishing trips. And, uh, Johnny, can you tell us what was Wilbur really like? Well, he's a nice guy, but, you know, if we go to this hole over here, this slough right here, we might find some puppy drum or even some bluefish. Okay, we'll get over there. Tell me, was Orville really as, uh, was his voice as high-pitched as people said it was? Well, yeah, he, he did have a high-pitched voice, but, you know, if we use this bait like what we have here, we're going to catch some fish. And it was one of the ironic things that Johnny Moore could never get away from was the fact that people always wanted to talk with him about Wilbur and Orville. Now, a second gentleman uh, that was there was actually a lumber dealer from Roanoke Island. The night before, the storm of the night before, had put a ship nearby the station on shore, and a lot of these shipwreck salvagers, it could actually be uh, fairly lucrative. This gentleman, his uh, name was uh, Will Brinkley, came over to the beach there to bid on a large cache of lumber that had washed up with this shipwreck. So he is in the station uh, talking with Mr. Daniels. Uh, the keeper, John T. Daniels, was from Roanoke Island as well and uh, was having a cold biscuit and a bowl of beans. And uh, when the flag went up, so John Daniels uh, invited uh, this shipwreck salvager, uh, Mr. Brinkley, Will Brinkley, to come along. Now also on duty was a gentleman uh, uh, that morning. Uh, his name was Will Doe, D-O-U-G-H, a uh, long-established Outer Banks family. Mr. Doe was the kind of person who uh, followed the tenets of his faith uh, very carefully. He was a uh, religious man, said that uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Mr. Doe, probably more so than anybody else, put in as much time while the rights were here for two and a half years, toting around those gliders 
And then finally, the right flyer, which uh, was in excess of 600 pounds. You've got six men carrying that plane various places. There was a fourth gentleman by the name of uh, John T. Beecham, John T- of uh, Thomas Beecham, he went by. Uh, Mr. Beecham's illustrious claim to fame was that he went on record with one of the local papers that uh, uh, when he saw those right fellers out there on the beach trying to mimic the flight antics of buzzards that all the local people thought those boys from Ohio was crazy. Uh, uh, he was able to redeem himself many years later, hat in hand, when Wilbur allowed him to be an agent, a uh, real estate agent, so to speak, uh, for some of the material that uh, the Wright brothers had left here. Perhaps the most important witness of all was life-saving station guard John Thomas Daniels Jr. He was there in the thick of things, assisting the Wright brothers as they hurriedly set up their experiment on that day. Since the actual flight would require both the brothers' attention, they needed someone to hopefully document their success story. John had never seen a camera before that day, much less operated one. Orville set it up on its tripod, showed John the basic steps, and entrusted him to capture their flight on film. While John had an adventure of his own that day, we know now that he got the job done and took one of the most famous photographs of all time, earning his own statue at the Wright Brothers National Memorial. Listen as Danny recounts what went through John's mind that morning. John Daniels, caught up in the excitement of the moment, did not know if he had squeezed that bulb or not. By the time Orville came down to a soft landing, and everybody's standing there wide-eyed, and Johnny Moore, the exuberant 18-year-old, reportedly yelling out, They done it! They done it! They dang sure done it! Wilbur turned to Keeper Daniels and said, Did you get it? Did you get it? And John Daniels' response was, I don't know. And it was several weeks later, it was about six weeks later, after those uh, glass negatives, those glass plates were developed, that we got that iconic photo that proved that the Wright brothers had indeed been the first in the air. Now, one last little tidbit there on Keeper Daniels. Uh, when the Wright brothers had finished and they were going to go ahead and tear down the plane and make, uh, make haste to get out of Kitty Hawk the following morning so that they could be in Dayton for Christmas Eve, a gust of wind, they forgot to strap down the Wright flyer, a gust of wind caught the edge of the plane and stood it up. Instinctively, Keeper Daniels grabbed that edge of the plane and the gust of wind was strong enough that it catapulted him 35 feet in the air and slammed him down onto the sands in a mesh of wire and balsa wood and teak wood, at which point uh, several years later that instance got him in the Flight Hall of Fame as the first person to survive an airplane crash. True story. There's no question why the first flight photographed this North Carolina State's quarters representative image. It's a mark not only of achievement that changed the world, but also a tribute to the Outer Banks and the hospitable people who helped provide ideal working conditions for the Wright brothers for all those years. But that's not all North Carolina has to offer as a state. In fact, the Outer Bank region alone has much more to brag about beyond the first flight. Danny himself campaigned for the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse, located 
in Buxton. It's a historic lighthouse that shares an exclusive distinction with the Statue of Liberty and the Golden Gate Bridge. Danny told us about the design election process, including the competition between different regions of North Carolina as well as the state of Ohio. There were, when the this ultimately successful, I mean, what, what a great thing. Uh, I don't think anybody really saw the success that uh, the, I guess it's the Treasury Department was going to have with these uh, state symbols on the back of the uh, quarters of uh, our 50 states. And North Carolina here, uh, the with our uh, compelling history here, there was a lot of competition from the western part of the state, also the central uh, part of North Carolina, where most of our population is, what we call the triangle there, uh, Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill, and of course the triad, uh, Winston-Salem, Greensboro, High Point area, and then of course the mountains uh, out in the Blue Ridge areas there. Everybody had uh, what they wanted to and worked hard to advocate for their section of the state to go on the back of the quarter. Once these, once this this quarter uh, stuff uh, became hip. Uh, it got quite competitive. Of course, you had the the NASCAR aspect of things there in the uh, central part of what we call the Piedmont, uh, out in the mountains, uh, our Blue Ridge Mountains. Uh, absolutely, some of the most stunning scenery you're going to find here in the United States. But then also here on the coast, uh, with uh, the Wright brothers. Yeah, there was some acknowledgement there, but the preferred. From the legislative standpoint, the North Carolina General Assembly, the North Carolina Legislature, uh, the immediate lead on our quarter was the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse. That's one of three recognized maritime symbols that we have in our country. Number one, of course, the Statue of Liberty, bring us your poor, your tired, your huddled masses yearning to be free. Number two, the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco Bay. And then three, the granddaddy of American lighthouses, the tallest structure in the world when it was completed in 1870, the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse. That has been our calling card. That is the most recognized lighthouse, certainly in the United States, and uh, some would argue in the world. Now, as this stuff was being debated out with the uh, who's going to be on our quarter, by golly, as this stuff was being hashed out, the Wright brothers began to kind of work into the mix there a little bit. North Carolina and Ohio have fought like uh, fought like teenage brothers over whose position gets to claim the benefit of the Wright brothers. Were Wilbur and Orville, uh, were they native Ohioans? Yes, they were, but they flew here. The folks from Ohio, well, we, they were from Ohio, and our position is, but they flew here. So while we are fighting this out, Ohio is good-natured. It's a very friendly uh, rivalry, and, and there's room for both of us. I kind of chuckled at the fact when uh, Connecticut tried to get into the game there with uh, Gustav Whitehead, and there was a kind of a grainy, fuzzy photo that was pro produced as proof that uh, Whitehead had flown uh, up in Connecticut, at which point I believe it was the Ohio senator who stood up in one of these uh, hearings or one of these media opportunities and said, I've seen better pictures of Sasquatch. So 
that got a big uh, Connecticut in its place a little bit. The Wright brothers, they do they they belong to the nation? Oh, absolutely, they do. But Ohio and North Carolina have really been able to seal their place in that great achievement uh, of the first flight. So once the Wright brothers began to get a little bit of steam going on here, it came down to crunch time. It came for up for a vote. And it was the Wright Brothers, the Wright Brothers National Monument that became uh, our symbol on our quarter. And the uh, Cape Hatters Lighthouse would have to uh, have standby duty. So now you see, these state quarter designs carry great significance. They tell a story, not just of a single moment in history, but of communities and opportunities and the hard work that led up to those moments. And as we learn from the Cape Hatteras Lighthouse, the state quarter is really just a starting point. There's so much more to each and every state. And on Quarter Miles, we intend to share more of those stories and inspire you all to plan your own adventures. Danny Couch is a lifelong resident of Hatteras Island. He leads tours of the historic and beautiful island through Hatteras Tours. Learn more at www. HatterasTours.com. Relive the first flight by visiting the Wright Brothers National Memorial, located in what is now called Kill Devil Hills. Follow the flight line to see where the flight took off and landed. Place yourself within the flyer in an enormous sculpture replica of the plane the Wright Brothers flew. You can also explore the reconstructed 1903 camp buildings to see what life was like for guards at the life-saving station and the Wright Brothers themselves. For more information, visit www.mps.gov wr And for our daring listeners, explore the same skies the Wright brothers did in Kitty Hawk with Kitty Hawk Kites. They operate the largest hang gliding school in the world. Take hang gliding lessons or enjoy the views while a pilot leads you in a tandem flight. They have several different packages available and have taught people from ages 4 to 92. See what they're all about at www.kittyhawk.com. Thank you for listening to Quarter Miles today. We hope you'll join us for another edition of Quarter Miles when we explore the beautiful USA, all based on the design on the back of a U.S. quarter. Quarter Miles Travel would like to extend a very special thank you to the following people and companies who helped make this North Carolina Wright Brothers podcast possible. The National Park Service, the Wright Brothers National Memorial, Outer Banks of North Carolina Tourism, Aaron Truel, Martin Arms, and our special guest, Danny Couch.